Welcome to our podcast today on Small Business Horsepower. We're so happy that you can join us. And today, it's our pleasure to host Evan Seinfeld. You guys are going to really love this episode. There's a hell of a lot to get into, and let's get into it right away. Evan, you were a singer in a band, an actor, an adult star, and you've built so many businesses. Give us a little bit of background on yourself, especially starting with your music career out of Brooklyn. Well, hey, Mahul, thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, I grew up in Canarsie in Brooklyn. I was born in the late 60s. I'm 53 years old now. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the kind of like a blue collar working class neighborhood. And, you know, to me, small business was Sonny's hero shop. You know, it was a guy making sandwiches. I didn't really know anything about business. My dreams were to be a rock star and you know, I loved music and I loved Kiss. And it's funny, Peter Chris from Kiss was from my neighborhood. So there was a little thread of, you know, anything could happen, I guess, I always believed. And I started a band that came out of high school that, you know, different players, different people, changing vision and concept. And like, you know, in high school, everybody does battle of bands, you know. And for me, it wasn't like something that I was doing before I was going to go get a job I didn't want you know for me it was always about passion and career and authenticity and I wasn't the best musician in the neighborhood there were guys at the battle of the bands better than me but I wanted it more and I was determined to make it some way however I could and you know the band we were it was really like a small business there was no internet it was the late 80s it was 1987 and me I met some guys we were a bunch of hoodlums from Flatbush and we hung out at 116 Rockaway Beach and we hung out in the village. And um, we were hanging around the New York hardcore scene, going to CBGB's, going to Lemoore's in Brooklyn and seeing amazing bands like metal bands like Metallica and Carnivore, but also seeing bands like the Cro-Mags and the Bad Brains and kind of in between that heavy metal and punk and my love for hip hop. I started a band called Biohazard and pretty soon just by us being like neighborhood guys and literally like going door to door going, Hey, we're playing at the thing tonight. Why don't you come bring, bring Marie, you know, bring the family. Let's all come. And we started kind of becoming known as the ambassadors of the mosh pit, I guess. And before we even had a record deal, we were selling out Lemoore's in Brooklyn, which bands with a gold record couldn't always sell out. And New York City, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Next thing you know, we're signed to Def Jam's management company and we're working with Russell Simmons. And Russell Simmons and Lior Cohen, two of the most successful, you know, music industry mavericks and moguls are really who I was trying to listen to and pay attention to when I was in my early 20s because they were the guys who owned and ran Def Jam and they managed Run DMC and they managed Eric B and Rakim and Big Daddy Kane. And, you know, they worked with the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J. It was, I'd never been around people that were successful before. I didn't even know what that looked like. And suddenly there were people with, you know, Rolls Royces and, you know, fancy cars and, incredible homes and we're going on tour with the band and the band signed the warner brothers and you know next thing i know we're working with it you know our attorney is michael guido and he works with the biggest people in the world his firm represents you know madonna and jay-z you know and uh bon jovi people like that 
And uh, the band went on through the 90s to sell about 5 million albums with no radio play. Total underground word of mouth. We used to play around 300 shows a year, and we toured with everybody from Ozzy Osbourne to the Wu-Tang Clan. And uh, that's pretty much... It became the kind of thing, we had a real connection with the fans. The business opportunity was merchandising. It was selling tickets. It was coming up with cool T-shirt ideas and coming up with merchandise items that were maybe a little trendy and, and helping us spread like New York street culture in Europe. We did a collaboration with Adidas through Run DMC and our band was really big in the Netherlands. We used to play at this... Uh, festivals with like 150,000 people. And so we made a collaboration with Adidas to make the Ajax, the, uh, like the Dutch football team, their colors with our logo, the Biohazard logo. And we made a fortune selling these things at festivals. But it was funny because a band, it's like a, you know, it's like a democracy usually. It's a whole bunch of people making decisions and a manager and another manager and an agent and a record label and a publisher. And everybody's got part of the idea and while you know i enjoyed a lot of success with the band it was not really a great business it was just it was a great life and for me the definition of success is not having to do anything but what you love to do to make your living you know so i call that whole thing a success it was hard a lot of people don't realize when you're in a band there's 23 other hours in the day and you're not at your home with your creature comforts. You're, you know, freezing your ass off in a backstage room in Belgium, you know. It's cold and wet sometimes. Yeah, but I'll tell you something. For me, you reach the pinnacle. Now, I'm not a metal fan or a hip-hop fan, but I am a rock and roll fan. And one of my favorite bands, besides the Beatles, I love The Who, but one of my favorite bands is Led Zeppelin. And one of the CDs that I always listen to, I was reading something about this about you, but one of the CDs I always listen to is when Jason Bonham in London played on stage with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and then the rest of the group in that O2 arena. I got that thing. That thing is amazing. And uh, I was reading online that I'm not sure you might have been there and you met Jason Bonham there. I am so jealous. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, talk about reaching the pinnacle. Well, so Jason and I were on a reality show together called Supergroup in 1996. It was me, Ted Nugent, Jason Bond, Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. And, and we were living in a house and Scott Ian from Anthrax. We were living in a mansion in Vegas. And we had to make a band and Jason and I, we'd met before, but we really connected, you know, we're both, you know, guys who are like recovering alcoholics. And, you know, we really bonded musically and as friends. And when he got the Led Zeppelin gig, bro, he fucking called me up. And I was like, I figured, you know, he told 100 people already. He told me for some reason, I was the first person he said he called his friend Tony. And Tony didn't answer, so he called me. But he's like, I've got the gig. And he invited me, and I went. I actually sat with his mom, me and my ex-wife, ex Tara Patrick, the porn star. And uh, Mrs. Bonham sat together while Jason took the throne. It was pretty incredible. And what was funny is the Def Leppard guys were sitting right behind us and they were really drunk and like really loud. And they were starting to like annoy Mrs. Bonham. 
you know, I had to like turn around and give him like a Brooklyn stink eye, like guys, guys, you know. Wow. And the other guy before we change subjects that I really like that I read that you played with. So I just got to ask about it before we get back to a little bit of small business here is David Bowie. I love David Bowie. I never got to meet him. What is he like? Or what was he like? Yeah, I'm, I'm a classic rock guy myself. David Bowie was a guy who he looked like he was electrified. Like he looked like he had like a light coming from inside himself. He looked like an illuminated being. Every once in a while, you'll see someone like that. Another person I once met who was illuminated like that was Christy Brinkley. But it was funny. I had played festivals with David Bowie with Bad Religion in Germany. We did and Prodigy. It was like a really eclectic bill. And we had did like six of these like traveling festival shows and like David Bowie would be walking around backstage in an amazing suit with Iman, you know, and she's wearing a gown and they're just hanging out. And, you know, he was very chill and personable and smiley. And I remember I was backstage with Jason at the O2 and I came out of Jason's dressing room and like the people hanging out at that thing were in the backstage. I mean, it was stupid. It was like, here's the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Here's David Bowie. And David Bowie remembered me. I remember I looked so cool to, uh, I don't remember who it was. I was standing there with somebody and he's like, hey, Evan, how you been, man? I couldn't believe you remembered my name. It was fucking David Bowie. Well, listen, you took that business and I read the article how you had mentioned Tara Patrick and at that time sought you out. And because you were on that show Oz, which uh, you graduated to from music, and then eventually you yourself got into the adult film career. But I was reading about something where you said you like made more in one month in that business than your whole music career. So I gotta, I gotta hear something about that. Oh God, yeah. So part of yeah, I was in music. I was an actor on TV. Did some reality stuff. That's all fun and dandy. I meet my ex-wife. She signed into some slavery contract with some awful company that somebody filed a trademark on her name, like some real shit people thing. And like, you know, I work with real IP lawyers, you know, not just like monkey business. This is still like the golden era of porn was still ruling. And, you know, I got her out of the deal and then I looked around at the business. At the time, the biggest star was Jenna Jameson. And, and Tara was like right there. She had her own show on Playboy. Tara's star was rising. Jenna was already the biggest star in the world. There was nowhere left for her to go, really, you know. And I took a look at the things that Jenna was doing with her career, with her husband at the time. And I was like, okay, they're making movies. They're doing pay sites. They have touch points with their fans. They're doing appearances. And I kind of just found my own lane for Tara that was like parallel to Jenna, but we actually worked with them for a little while on internet stuff. And, you know, I learned a lot from them. I made a, my first deal that I made was with uh, Steve Hirsch at Vivid. And if you've ever been in LA, they used to have like the Vivid office right across the Universal. And that was my very first office was at the Vivid building. And then, we got a little too big for their space. And I started my company, TerraVision. And I saw really clearly, I was like, okay, content, distribution, content, licensing, trademark, branding, 
promotion and marketing, press and PR. The idea was you create something that people want. And now I'm very clear. I don't want to be in a business where you got to talk somebody into, hey, you want to buy this mop with fucking three heads? No. I like to sell things that people are already buying, like porn and drugs and music, things that make people feel something. I'm in the I'm in the fucking passion business, you know? I'm in the business of whatever you get from Evan Seinfeld, you're going to come away feeling something. I have a new, you know, I'll tell you about it at the end, but I have a cannabis company launching this year. But, you know, I saw clearly it was just like the music business or the movie business, except it was really small, DIY and independent. And, you know, with Tara Patrick, she was such a big star. She was with some company that was paying her like fucking $2,500 a month. The first movie that we made together, we made like $400,000 in like two months. It was insane. People couldn't stop. People wanted it. And there was not yet free porn on the internet. There, there was not yet. This is like 2002. And it was exciting. We put up pay sites. We stood up clubterra.com, terrapatrick.com. Then I got into it with my own website. I started a website called Rockstar Pimp dot com which was like a tongue-in-cheek thing and then i changed it to rockstarpornstar.com and it's just something that kind of sells itself in a way if you have quality content i was always very sexual and i always liked you know i liked porn i wasn't like a huge porn fan but i always thought it was awesome i thought it was you know fantasy you know escape visualization so it's, it's a drug a little bit you know and we started going to the AVN awards and, you know, I started displaying and having my own booth. I worked very closely with Larry Flint and Michael Klein and we launched Hustler TV and I was, I was their first studio. Well, let me ask you this, Evan, because I'm interested in from small business horsepower. By the way, you're listening to Evan Seinfeld with us today, our pleasure today on small business horsepower. Evan, what about this controlling the content? Because what I see today is this stuff like OnlyFans where, or, and I see for you something like Is My Girl or OnlyFans or these kind of things where it doesn't matter whether you're in the Philippines or Asia or Astoria, but you basically are a one woman or one man type of person that controls their own destiny and their own content through these apps. Can you tell me about that? So here it is. You're right on. So I always hear the successful entrepreneurs that I admire talk about their failures. And, you know, for me, I had an epic, epic fucking fail in 2008 slash 2009. I built what was maybe the first ever user generated content fan platform called Peepstar. And because I was a huge producer in porn and I was, you know, making millions of dollars and I was married to the top star in the business and I had all the, I, I gave lots of work to all the stars they wanted to be in, in my movies. I had relationships and I also owned a talent agency that we had back in those days under my ex-wife's name, Tara Patrick Agency. And we had about 60, you know, pretty well-known porn stars signed to the agency. So we had the rapport and the repertoire with the girls. So I came up with the idea, hey, you can make a video, right? And you could upload it with your phone to a text message. 
and your fan could pay to receive the text message and then click a hyperlink in the text and open the video in your browser. I found some guys from a Swedish phone company who figured out how to do this in 2008. And I raised some money, famous porn star named Sarah Jesse, who's a good friend, helped me raise the money. She had a friend who was an investor, a really cool guy. And we built this site and we told the girls, we, we, I had a booth at the Erotica LA show at AVN. We told the girls, okay, we're launched. Go make your own content and start uploading and making money. And there was a few things disconnected. One, social media was still just MySpace. So there was no way to make a call to action to your fans to sign up. Two, the word selfie hadn't been invented. I couldn't get the girls to make their own content. They would go, who's going to shoot it? I was like, you. They go, that's boring. Now, if you go out with a girl who does porn, she won't stop making selfie videos on her phone, not even at dinner. This is human behavior now. So in 2016, I started a company with the owners of Inked Magazine um, out of New York um, and my other partners who own Streammate, who's the world's biggest webcam site. This is like when you go to Pornhub and live people pop up this is my partners, you know, they, they're the probably the most successful adult company in the world. And I built a platform with the intention of being a pay version of Instagram meets Facebook, where creators could create their own profiles, create, upload their own content and have a lot of different features and ways to interact with their fans with a call to action for social media for them to monetize their own content. Um, I launched the site in 2016. You know, last year we paid out something like 12 million to our creators. We have, if you go to ismygirl.com, you'll see the site. If you go to ismygirl.com slash press, you can read some of the articles we've been in just in the last six months. We've probably been in Forbes three or four times, Business Insider, BuzzFeed, Bloomberg, New York Times, New York Post, name it. They, they're talking about this business because of the phenomenon of OnlyFans. And I wish I could tell you the most interesting thing they're talking about is my company. But, you know, while we're successful, you know, OnlyFans is massive, apparently, you know, doing something around the tune of $3 billion a year in revenue. And now their business model is the same as ours. We all pay out 80% to the creators and we all have a lot of expenses. And I'll, I'll say this, I'll put the elegance and the functionality and even the business model of is my girl, which is my site. We also have is my guy, which is our mail site. And we also have inked girls, which is inkedgirl.com, which are all different communities we offer something OnlyFans doesn't. We offer promotion and marketing to the models. OnlyFans leaves the models on their own or creators, whatever they're called, to simply promote themselves. I always make a not like a little joke. I go, you should call them not OnlyFans, but you should call it only your fans because you don't get any fans from them. You only are able to use their platform to monetize your existing fans, you know?
Evan, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question based on that because I was thinking right now, this is great for adult stars and for other kinds of um, specialty stars, people in tattoos and other things. But do you see this going someday to where even just mainstream actors will be on these kind of platforms where they control their own content yes well listen i'm working on so i'm i'm a person i really like to create i have to be honest i don't like to manage i like to build and create so i've been doing a lot of strategic partnerships and um i'm going to be announcing a new platform uh probably in early 2022 that will be geared not towards adult, but towards mainstream and celebrity, and also another platform where we're helping people achieve goals. I'm constantly trying to come up with like the next thing. It's really interesting to me. I really enjoy conceptualizing. So this was really like an empowering thing, but I got to be honest with you, if you're listening to the podcast, this is the best thing I could leave anybody else because I didn't go to school, I, you know, I have ADHD and, and back in the eighties, they didn't diagnose you with ADHD. They said, this kid's a problem. And, uh, I wasn't good at school. I was smart, good at numbers and math. I was good at concepts and ideas, but I wasn't good at school and I didn't go to school for business. You know, for me, everything was always about bootstrapping from the bottom up and coming up saying, how do I take my idea? How do I, rub these two sticks together, make a little fire, you know? And for me, it had to start with the first thing I did was music. And that was like entering an impossible arena. I remember people around me, my parents, my teachers, what are you doing? You don't have any talent, kid. You're just a, you're just a fucking rotten kid. How are you going to make it in music? You never studied music. You didn't go to school for it. But if you believe you can do something, you at least have a chance that you can. But if you believe that you can't do something, you're 100% right. You will stop yourself. So when I was able to achieve a, a level of success in the music business, I then believed anything was possible and I counted on myself to succeed in everything I did. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, you know, I've just done the things that I've done in my life. I, I wish every one of them were even at a higher level, but, you know, here in my 50s, I'm, I'm talking to some literary agents right now about writing a life story or like a biography book. Um, I've had an interesting life and I've been successful at some of the hardest things to be successful at. Now, when I say successful, it's not like I've made my fortune. Fucking grinding today. I'm so fucking hungry. I'm about to build three new fucking platforms. I'm doing fucking M&A shit and I'm... I'm, I'm constantly looking at new ways of approaching my own business to be the most future forward, to model what I'm creating like along, along a growth line of where I think people's behavior is going. But I, it's interesting to me to figure out how to connect people. Like I'm building this new site. It's a, I don't want to say the name of it, but it's a, a social network for people to smoke weed together live on like FaceTime. Yeah, but see me, I got really, so I, I, I am actually launching a tradition, I wouldn't say traditional, but a, a physical cannabis company this year. I, I just, you know, signed a deal with some partners and we're 
you know, I'm going to be the branding and the marketing arm of it. You know, I work with all these influencers. I work with all these gorgeous girls that have millions of followers. And one thing they all have in common, the at least the ones that I'm friendly with, is they all mostly smoke weed and they've all made lots of money with my companies. So, you know, they usually come back and they're very loyal with, with us. And I thought to myself, I was watching Instagram and Wiz Khalifa came on and he was smoking weed on like a split screen with each of his fans. And then Instagram like, you know, gave him like a ban for violating their terms of service. And I'm like, it's a social network for people to be social, but Instagram and Facebook only want you to be social with the things that they're comfortable with, like Disney and Little Mermaid. And, you know, they don't want to hear about strippers and weed and porn and things that people love. I'm not saying that those things are good or that those things are any more important than anything else. But I think when you create a real environment of censorship, that's not what people want. And the pandemic, man, this turned the lights on because the phenomenon of OnlyFans and the success of my companies, like Is My Girl, my company is called Create Media, and we build these platforms, is because, I don't know, how many people lost their jobs in America? Something like, you know, at one point, it was like 40 million people. If you go on the website, on ismygirl.com slash press, you'll find a video I get called out by Tucker Carlson on Fox News by name. He calls me out by name because he read a quote from me in Axios where I was saying that through the pandemic, we've become almost like a women's empowerment network. You know, there were so many people out of work who probably never would have considered a career in the adult business who necessity becomes the mother of invention. And what we learned is that it doesn't have to be dirty. It doesn't have to be so taboo. Everything doesn't have to be so extreme. The majority of the models on our site sell like fun playboy style, like tasteful, artsy, social media influencer feeling nudes. Or some of them, actually about 15% of the girls don't even do nudes. They just do like bikini and lingerie and like implied things. And for me, it's exciting when I hear a story of a girl who was a stripper who was doing drugs because she hates stripping and then she gets on my platform or a platform like OnlyFans and then she's making 10, 20, 30 grand a month and she doesn't have to strip anymore. Now she's buying a condo and she's giving me advice on what stocks to buy on fucking Robinhood, you know? But I'll tell you what, one of the girls, one of the girls who was my little pet project because she was a little bit can't get out of her own way a little bit and very beautiful girl. She actually just had a baby, um, but she's been with my company since the beginning and the girls made hundreds and hundreds of thousands per year. And it's a real success story because she, like me, both lived, we both at one time in our lives lived in our car. You lived in your car at one time, huh? I sure did. I sure did. I lived in, in the backseat of my 1972 Cadillac Fleetwood Brougham. I was delivering. I had a cocaine overdose when I was about eight, 19 or 20. And I was having such bad anxiety attacks that I couldn't work. So I lost my apartment. And because I was so fucked up, you know, nobody wanted me in their house and my parents wouldn't let me go in their house because they were out of town and I was not to be trusted in those days. Yeah, 
But this girl was living in her car, and it's funny. She actually sent me a picture. She just bought, like, one of those new Dodge Challenger, like a special edition, like a Hemi Hellcat or something. She just bought some ridiculous, over-the-top, like, muscle car. And, like, I'm not trying to act like we're saving the world here, you know? Um, but it's, it feels good to empower others. i got to tell you, the definition of a scalable business to me is a business that empowers other people to find their success because people are motivated. When people need money, they'll fucking work for it. Well, that's great, Evan. And I really want to thank you for coming today on Small Business Horsepower and letting our listeners hear your story. We'd love to have you back. Before you go here, I, I never met David Bowie. I never met Jason Bonham and I've never been in adult movies, but there is one thing that we have in common here. And we're both sad, pathetic, frustrated New York Jet fans. That's what one thing that we have in common here. And I got to ask you before you, before we go, I don't know how long we're going to live, but let's say it's another, I don't know, Let's even cut it short, 10 years. Are we going to see this team make the playoffs again? Is there hope, Evan, for the New York Jets? Oh, yeah. Listen, I got to tell you, I was really checked out as a Jet fan for the last, you know, for me, it's about the culture. Like, you know, when we first hired Coach Todd, you know, Coach Bowles, you know, I liked him as a player and as a D.C., but I didn't have really super high hopes. I didn't think he was Tony Dungy, you know? And I like Robert Sala. And I really like Joe Douglas. And I even like the thrifty little moves that they're making. And I like this signing culture guys. They're building a culture. They're doing it the right way. They're doing what Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch are, were attempting to do in San Francisco. Build a culture of guys with hard work ethic. I think, bro... I don't know if we're going to be in the playoffs. I think we will be in the playoffs within three years minimum. But I will say this. They're going to make it proud, make us feel proud to be a Jet fan again. Win or lose, we're going to have the kind of culture that you can have your head up. Like, it was hard with guys like Adam Gase around. Our organization is fucked up. We hire idiots like Rich Kotite. We pass on guys like Dan Marino to jump up and get guys like... Ken O'Brien and Browning Nagel, you know, um, you know, we pass on guys like Aaron Rodgers to get guys like Mark Sanchez. We're idiots. Yeah. And that was my last great moment as a Jet fan was that I flew from California to Foxborough. My friend couldn't make it. 10 degrees. I was in the upper deck when the Jets, after losing like, what was it, like 45 to three on Monday night football when they were trying to win the div And I get to Foxborough and nobody gives them a chance. And I got like these heat warmers and all this stuff. Oh yeah, I had like 10 packs of heat war warmers in my shoes. And cause I get a, I get cold and I, I would get cold in Grand Cayman. So here I am in the upper deck in Foxborough and the Jets beat the Patriots. That was that Wes Welker benched because of his comments on Rex Ryan. And, and here comes Mark Sanchez out of the locker room after the game. He went in and came out and he, he jumped right next to me in 
in the stands and and it was all Jet fans left there and we partied all night long there in Foxborough. That was the last good moment, you know. One of those great moments. Okay, I'll share with you my my Jets touch point. So, huge Jet fan, you know, my whole life. I actually, when I was a little kid, I also rooted for the Steelers in the 70s. I didn't understand that, you know, like, you know, the only route. I used to root for lots of other teams. I still have the teams I like, but it's a bunch of pictures of, of me actually even on Instagram with, with like, you know, 11 years old with a Steelers jersey and wearing a fucking helmet thinking I'm Jack Lambert. But uh, in 1991 or two, turned out... Um, Jeff Lagerman was a huge Jets fan, a biohazard fan. And I used to have season tickets. I sat in section 134 with my old friend, Mark Marone, that we had these tickets from this, this old guy, Joe, uh, who actually was like, he had some, he, when he was a young guy, he played for the New York Titans like not as a starter, but he was like, you know, he had legacy, but we had his season tickets. He was very old and him and his wife, Joanne would only go to the Patriots home game. That was the only game. So I would get all the seven other tickets every year. So even when the band was on tour, I would fly home for fucking jet games and we would go. I sat one section over from fireman Ed. This is for all the late eighties, the nineties, the two thousands. And you know, we used to go crazy in the stadium. It was, it was great. And then when biohazard started to get big and I got to know Jeff Lagerman, I, somebody put me in touch and he said, Oh, where do you sit? I'll come say hello. They sent me like an email on my AOL email. And then he came over and shook my hand, Jeff Lagerman. And I gave him a biohazard, like a hat and a t-shirt. And do you remember when we won the wild card or something? It was our only playoff win in the last fucking 30 years. Oh, are you talking about that? I was there. I flew in for that. My father was alive at that time. He lived in New Jersey. You're talking about that Jacksonville game? Yeah. I, um, the Jacksonville home game under Bill Parcells before they went to... Uh, there's somewhere. So this is proudest, maybe, maybe proudest moment of my life next to my kid being born, right? Uh, they're in the locker room fucking spraying champagne. Not something Jet fans are used to seeing. And Lagerman had a, he had like a couple of sacks or something in the game and he was doing the interview and he put the fucking hat, the biohazard hat I gave him on like during the interview, like, like, like as if it was a hat that said like, you know, AFC East champs or something, you know what I mean? It was like, uh, he was celebrating wearing my shit and he introduced me to Jumbo Elliott who introduced me to Jason Fabini who introduced me to Kerry Jenkins and Kerry Jenkins and I are still really close friends. And I actually talked to him a couple of weeks ago. You know, he went on to go to the bucks and win a super bowl, kind of like uh, Tom Brady, by the way, now I, now I watch the bucks and I root for Tom Brady. It's awesome. I never knew what that felt like to win. Well, thank you, Evan. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today on Small Business Horsepower. We really appreciate it and some great stories. And we ended with the Jets. So let's go for the J-E-T-S. Okay, we'll see how we do this year. And I'll check back in with you later, buddy. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night.